This is a gold star episode of our podcast. We will be diving into some very unsavory materials of adult and depraved content. We strongly advise that you skip this episode if you're sensitive to any of these topics. Today's episode will contain discussions of rape, excessive violence, pedophilia, and acts of torture. Listener discretion is strongly advised. <laughs> I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Oh, right. For Christ's sake, why? Hey! Why? Why? Because we fucking can! We don't submit to terror. I commit evil to destroy the greater evil. We make the terror. <laughs> Welcome to the World Domination Committee. A monthly podcast where we discuss villains from media and history, what makes a good villain, and what makes a bad villain better. I'm your host, Exala, and I've been writing lesbian nun fanfiction. And I'm your other host, Trinzala, and I've been doing some philosophy in the bedroom. Happy Valentine's Day, dear listeners. Today, we're going to be bringing you into a deep dive of the historical kind, and as mentioned as part of our trigger warning, it's gonna be a gold star episode. It's gonna be rough. It's gonna be really rough this time. For those of you that don't know what a gold star episode is, this is a reference from last podcast on the left, shout out, basically putting a star on the most depraved and heaviest hitting episodes we'll be covering. So most of our episodes have been pretty light up to this point. This guy we're talking about today was a real person and did some real fucked up shit. Uh, Definitely. And there might be some uh, people out there that are sensitive to these topics, not only if they've experienced them, but also if they haven't experienced them because it's going to the deep depravity of man. Yeah, exactly. We're, We're getting into like the deepest side for like for lack of a better word yeah definitely so but, i guess since we have no feedback from episode three no clean getaways we can dive into today's villain and who is today's villain pray tell hmm today's villain we are going to be covering le marquis de sade and how did we discover him that's really on you <laughs> well yeah uh, I think when I was a teenager, I was trying to be super edgy. I was like, let's how let, let's see how far I can get, you know, edge lord. Yeah, I was trying to see like you know, watching all the saw like movies and whatnot. How like monstrous can someone get? And from all like the Wikipedia articles I was reading, it's like, oh hey, this one guy. Look out for this one. <laughs> yeah, look out for this one. This guy like and all of like the historical text like made it some like the most messed up stuff. In fact, his name created an entire English word. Mm-hmm. And so, Which is a lot for a French guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Marquis de Sade, the word sadism actually comes from Sade. Yes. Which is pretty crazy. And sadism meaning taking pleasure in someone else's pain. But sadism from Sade, because of what he wrote about, what he did, he was very much into gaining benefit from the act of torturing people. And... Initially, when you were a teenager, how you discovered him, you thought you were reading 120 Days of Sodom. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. I was like, oh, okay, so this is the most messed up book at uh, whatever. I I, I read it. It turns out I was not reading 120 (laughs) Days of Sodom. I was actually reading Philosophy in the Bedroom. However, I will argue that uh, Philosophy in the Bedroom 
in my opinion, is still a little bit more messed up than 120 Days of Sodom. Yeah, and we'll touch on that a little bit later. After we get through Sod's life, we'll get into a little bit of his works. So, so who was Sod? Yeah. Where does he come from? For those of you who don't know, which, wow, okay, that's okay. That's what we're here for. We're here to teach and entertain and fuck you up a little bit. Sod was a French nobleman, an author, a politician, and a philosopher, and some would argue the most outrageous Enlightenment figure. I don't almost argue that he was almost anti-enlightenment, but <laughs> hey, hey, I'm not here. I'm not here to judge. Well, a little bit. I'm, I mean, little, I'm here to judge a little bit. Yeah. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, his first name was not Marquis, as one may think. It was actually Donatien Alphonse François. And uh, désolé les écouteurs en français. Pour tous les podcasts, nous allons dire l'homme comme Sad parce que le français est plus difficile. Oui. <laughs> Marquis was actually the hereditary title for nobility, so if that gives you any inclination of to how this guy was, he was a noble of hereditary birth, a little bit like Walpole, you know, how it goes, and that made him think he could get away with a lot of different things. Such as sex crimes? Mm-hmm. A lot of sex crimes. <laughs> it's going to become a reoccurring uh, oh, A reoccurring thread, for sure. Uh, he was most notable, I would say, for his writing of erotic literary pieces essentially so, he porn? Com- yeah he combined philosophy and porn he mostly used- just porn yeah i was gonna say he used porn to bring people in and then used the philosophy as a rant against christianity you know, you know i would say it's actually exactly the opposite i think he would because this is the enlightenment period everyone's like i want to be i want to read the most philosophical works of the time i think he was writing philosophy ah. as the thing to bring people in and then just was really like hey look at my porn and as we'll touch on a little bit later, a lot of Saad's work draw from real things he has encountered in his life. But we'll say that for a little bit. He's kind of like the, like, essentially like the OG fuzzy. Meow. <laughs> yeah, he basically wrote orgy fanfics, but added his own philosophical ramblings to it and drew from his own life experience, as one does. His work's kind of like really focused on violence, like extreme violence and torture, Suffering, Thus the term sadism, sad. Pedophilia and uh, like scat play, etc., etc., etc. Immense pain. That's really what his work's focused on. Like Severe kind of extremity. Yeah. A lot of people would say his works were about liberating people sexually. Uh, but based on his life background and when you actually read into it, we beg to differ. But we're covering him as a villain. We're painting him as a villain. I think he actually was villainous. We'll get into it. So he had a few famous writings that we know of today. A lot of his writings were destroyed at some point, which we'll get into. Mm-hmm. However, uh, some of the most known works he's known for today is 120 Days of Sodom. Of course. Philosophy uh, in the Bedroom. Bedroom. And also uh, Justine. And, and Juliet. And Juliet, which was kind of like the sequel to Justine. Yeah. And a few of our quotes for today's episode came from a documentary called Saad, the most outrageous of all of the Enlightenment artists. Behind the artist, perspective. All right. So let's, that was kind of like a, like a big overview. We're simplifying a lot. This guy did a lot of like fucked up shit in a short amount of time. Well, I wouldn't say it's a short amount of time, but like. Yeah, he was alive for a bit. But if you want a TLDR of today's episode, that overview was it. If you don't want to go any further, Good night, babies. We'll see you later. <laughs> yes. Go, go go lay down. Hopefully, Saw doesn't visit you in the middle of the night. Especially not on Valentine's Day. 
So he was probably born in Paris around June 2nd, 1740. Yeah. He was the son of a count, Jean-Baptiste François-Joseph de Sade, who was a diplomat, and Marie-Eleanor Maillet de Carmont, who was a lady-in-waiting, basically, like, part of the inner circle of royalty. She was kind of, like, the assistant to the royals. So, he was a rich baby bitch. (laughs) Yeah, he lived in, like, a private mansion. He was taken care of. This guy, if he had followed all the rules, would never have to want for anything ever, like, for the rest of his life. Exactly. He himself said, Nature and fortune had conspired to inundate me with their bounties. Now, unfortunately, even if you're rich at this time, life is still kind of brutal sometimes. So none of his siblings had much of a chance to survive until, like, a little bit after him. He had, what, a brother? And... As far as I know, none of his siblings survived childhood. Oh, okay. Maybe. Maybe he was involved. Maybe he wasn't. It was probably mostly just disease and sickness. Yeah. I mean, after the 1740s, life expectancy is not high. As we mentioned with Walpole, because he had so many siblings, you're hedging your bets, and the Saad family did not hedge their bets well enough because Saad was the sole remaining child. Now, because of this... And because his parents were such higher-up nobility, working in all of these different realms of expertise, Saad himself was raised by servants who catered to his every whim. This basically led him to becoming a spoiled rage baby. A spoiled little bitch, basically. Yeah. He got everything he wanted. Food whenever he wanted. Sleep whenever... No one gave him a bedtime. (laughs) No one ever gave him a bedtime. He had cookie crisp for breakfast and didn't have to go to sleep if he didn't want to. Exactly. But that with like, oh, I'm never going to have to worry about a career or an education or anything like. Yeah, exactly. He was set. Every He was basically right under like the king in terms of things. In fact, I would some would say like he probably lived better than a king because at least kings had responsibilities. Yeah, he actually was related to a family of royalty, which we'll cover pretty soon. But essentially, he belonged to the ruling class, and he believed that the world belonged to him and was there to obey him. Which he was kind of raised on, right? Yeah, if you're in a position of power, if you're an aristocracy and you are given everything at an early age, you kind of get used to that, and you would expect that of life. So it's not really surprising that Saad thought everything belonged to him, but it kind of escalated into something far worse than just being an entitled, rich, bratty baby. Right. I mean, he could have been just brazed and became like a narcissist, just like a normal, spoiled child. Yeah. But I don't think that really happened. Something flipped even further. Yeah, and we don't necessarily know what the inciting incident was. We know that he lost all of his siblings at an early age, and his parents were very absent, what with a diplomat dad away at work, and the mother being depressed because she lost all of her children. But the first incident we know is that at six years old, Saad beat up brutally his cousin, who happened to be the Prince of Condé. And it's likely due to Saad's superiority complex. He thought he was invincible, because normally you would get into huge trouble for this. Oh yeah, yeah. You, it would like, not you, be. This is not kosher anyway. among like even the, like the nobility. Like this is not like normal things that you would do. You don't beat up your prince cousin. <laughs> it would be a huge embarrassment for Saad. He gets away with it. Yeah, and teaches him basically he can do whatever the fuck he wants to do whenever the fuck he wants to do it and get away with anything and get away with it. 
So that brings us to the first in Saad's villain's arc, his threshold and trauma. His mom ended up skipping town to go live in a convent. Probably to get away from her husband, also her fucking demon child. Yeah, no kidding. And this may have actually inspired a lot of his writings, which revolved around the topic of debaucherous nuns. Maybe even fostered his own Oedipus complex? Hmm. So, after that, he was sent to live with his uncle in Provence. Kind of a gothic province of excellence. And essentially like a fortress castle. Because, again, nobility... Uh, aristocracy. Move him from one castle to the other. Oh, he'll be doing that through a lot of his <laughs> life. Which, he might have fostered this obsession with the dark and whatnot and inflicting pain as he saw a lot of, like, witchy, demonic... Dicky. Like, like, yeah, he saw, like, a bunch of, like, all this, like, weird art. Like, you can uh, think about... What is that artist? Is it Bacchus? Bosch. Oh, Bosch. That's right. So some imagery like that kind of like strewn about, think about this as like kind of like an adult's castle, I guess you could say. Yeah. He sees tits out, dicks out, demons flying. He goes, ooh, I'm a little child. This is fascinating to me. Oh, I remember seeing that demon. It looks like my uncle. (laughs) So at a very young age, he was exposed to very dark shit, not only in his exterior surrounding in the castle in Provence, but also within his mind. Now, this is where we reach the second point of his villain's journey. He had not one, but two mentors. The first being his priest uncle, who happened to introduce Saad into the libertine philosophy. Now, Tran, what is libertine philosophy? Oh, so I can tell you a little bit about libertine philosophy, but I want to go back on this priest thing, because I just finished a a book like this afternoon about where priests did some things. It was interesting. However, the libertine philosophy is a philosophy in which morals are abject. They do not matter. It is due to what you win. Uh, It is basically in contrary to any morality. It is a morality in the absence of morality. Especially in terms of sexual manners, too. Especially in terms of sexual manners, especially in terms of violence. It is basically the rejection of especially Christian uh, morality yeah. at that time. Like giving into your hedonism. Which some might say that is helpful during the Enlightenment because during the Enlightenment in France at this time, there was a kind of a movement of the rejection of the, I believe it was the second estate, which was the clergymen and the amount of power that they held over the third estate and some of the nobility uh, that would be part of the first estate we're kind of catching on to this with things like the Jacobin and whatnot. However, not many of them were part of the Libertine. Libertine was a very extreme rejection of all morality and churchly manners. And I think it was really interesting considering Saad's mentor happened to be a priest. A lot of people in his life were part of the clergy, but taught him the opposite of what a stand-up clergyman should be, essentially. Like, right, and that's what, in a book I was reading earlier, 120 Days of Sodom, in which priests do everything unpriestly to a multitude of people and yeah. perhaps he might have gotten some inspiration from his uncle here i i think for sure i mean for one his uncle had a whole lot of lovers and saw heard and saw 
all, essentially, based on living with his uncle, I think there was this duplicity of this pious churchgoer priest in the streets, but a hoe in the sheets. Like, not to slut shame, but his uncle got around and got around in some very interesting ways, which gave Saad some ideas. Now, I won't say that priests during this time weren't always the best. Uh, a lot of cardinals at this time might be blasphemous to say. However, a bunch of cardinals at this time did take on wives and mistresses, even though they were not supposed to. However, when you're a young child, you are still believing in the holiness of priest and church, and they shouldn't be acting in this way, especially if they are not only part of the church, but also involved in higher politics and leading the people. So his uncle introduced Saad into some books, kind of get him out of some physical torture of uh, torturing all the kiddos and get him to writing some fanfic. Hey, stop beating up your cousin. Uh, you want to you wanna write some books, kid? You want to write about beating up your cousin? That sounds great. Yeah, get creative here, kid. Oh, good work. You see all the art in my walls? You know who did that? Someone who could draw. You could write. Solid was very much encouraged by his uncle to not only explore ideas outside of the realm of, like, proper Catholicism, Christianity. He encouraged, oh, get your get yourself off, basically, through violent writing. And in 1750, Saad returned Which, to Paris. Hey, that's actually not a too terrible of an idea. No, it's not. I mean, especially if he's out there, like, beating people up and whatnot. It's like, hey, can you channel this? Have you ever heard the, that advice? If you're angry at someone, write them an angry letter and then burn it. Yeah, exactly. So I think it started with good intents. Maybe also Saad's uncle just didn't want him to go blabbing about how naughty the uncle was being. True. Uh, but I don't think anyone had an idea of how the writing would escalate. Oh, exactly. So in 1750, Saad returned to Paris to live with his dad, who was above the law and also just so happened to be a libertine. Oh, a libertine, you say? Yeah. Which this brings... family's so messed up. It's a sign of the times. They're the aristocracy. They're high in power. If you got the money, you get away with what you want. At least, that's what Desaad would think. Let them eat cake. <laughs> so that brings us... Or asshole. Whichever one they please. You want cake in the asshole? I mean, it's a libertine. You want cake in your mouth and in the asshole? Go for it. Go for it. Whatever you want. The world is your oyster to eat. So that brings us to Ventor 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> That's when Saad returned to Paris. He was mentored by his father, as we mentioned, who was a libertine. And his father showed him a little bit more into the world of sexuality, notably by sharing mistresses with his son. As Saad's father said, she does not find me too old, nor my son too young. Oh, yeah, his dad was like, oh, yeah, 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 let me teach you about some sexuality, son. You want to end this, bruh? I got you covered. Here, hey, hey, come here. Yeah, sleep with my son. Yeah, yeah, Sharing yeah. is caring. Sharing is, yeah, even STD, sharing is caring, right? No, no, except for disease. Uh, I think in this time. They didn't care about disease. Uh, <laughs> this is why it's a gold star episode, folks. I guess it's better than sharing your cousin. Am I right, two doors? Oh, call out. <laughs> Those were some of his mentors. So he had so many temptations throughout like all of this. 
So temptations and motivation is going to be pretty easy here. He had what? Riches, houses, sex workers galore, shared or bought by his daddy, brought in by... His uncle. By his uncle. People that toted to him, like... His entire life was basically full of temptations, and no, he, really, he had servants to clean up after whatever he did too. Yeah, no, so he, he was really no dishes to be washed. <laughs> yes, no chores. Didn't have to worry about work. But I think his entire life's like having temptations was what motivated him, and that translates to his works. And didn't really encourage physical abuse necessarily, or. Um, his parents, rather, yeah. Well, I'm saying even, like, this entire upbringing, like, having sex workers, being rich, uh, having, like, great houses, that doesn't necessarily inspire you to, like, be a violent person, so to speak. Right. However, maybe not getting punished after you do such actions. Encourages it. Encourages it. So it's or, it's the lack of having any reprimands, essentially, from anyone Right, and I, I think his dad also kind of like further encouraged the, like some of the sexual misconduct because I bet even if these sex workers were mistreated, his dad's like, well, yeah, of course, you own like the household. You're the only son. You're gonna be. You should be able to do whatever you want to do, and that's how you're gonna have to act in the business world and in the political world. Yeah, coming his, forward as a mentor, his father kind of instilled the ideology that people that you pay for services to you own because of that payment but i think that was wrong and i think that tainted his idea of any form of power for him he thought he could own anyone when he was in a position of power be it monetarily psychologically anything within that realm i i think probably the best way to describe it would it be it, it would be like someone like donald trump if donald trump could get away with a around the laws of the united states before becoming president if he like grew up being like oh you can just torture people on the streets like it doesn't matter yeah and even to that extent like they did not encourage the behavior but when bad behavior did happen they let him get away with it they moved him around like pedophile priests in the modern age right if things got too contentious they didn't uh, punish disod or sod they punish, I guess, themselves like a little bit by being like, oh, let's just pay for a new college or like, let's just pay for a, like a, a new place to move them, a new castle. I don't even know if that was punishment. I just don't think they were very invested. No. I don't I, know. It didn't sound like it to me. Yeah. I was like, oh, let's just move a few numbers here and there on a spreadsheet. We'll get rid of Sod's endeavors yeah. by like, just send him over there. He'll be fine. Which I think is going to encourage his behavior as an adult. Oh, for sure. At only 10 years old, he was sent off to a Jesuit college, Lycée Louis-le-Grand, in Paris for four years, which in this place, they moved him around to get him kind of out of their sight, also to educate him, but here he was subjected to a lot of severe physical punishment, including flagellation, which is being whipped. And as an aftermath of that, it made him obsessed with the act. And so I think the reason it made him obsessed with the act is because before this, he had no punishment this at all. This is the first time he's experienced any actual pain and reprimand for his misdeeds. Right. And I, I think that really shakes someone if they go from one extreme 
to the other extreme. Yeah, if you're in a very Christian college and you're suddenly getting beaten, having come from a castle with servants and parents that don't care if you beat up your cousin, or at least a little bit, but... I, I think a little bit more than a little bit, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's it's a distinct tonal shift, though, from his upbringing to his, like, very formative childhood years. And I think it really piqued his interest, too, because before this, he might have started getting bored. He's like, I can do whatever I want all the time. This uh, isn't fun anymore. It's, it's so not fun. I just get whatever I want to. And as soon as someone, like, goes, no, and starts beating him, and he's on the other end, he goes, Oh, now this feels more like a game. Now I have more stakes to play with. Of now course. there's actually something on the table, and it like kind yeah. of piques his interest and makes him more, uh, I guess, excited in a weird way. Yeah, and in a way, this may have it was also probably a sign of the times or part of the requirements of the times, but also maybe that interest in this pain. At 14 years old in 1754, Saad attended military academy for 20 months, and then at 15 years old, he was commissioned as a sub-lieutenant soldier to fight in wars. Now, actually, I think this is a sign of the time because a lot of ranks that were decided military at the time, um, or like you would go to the military to become kind of an aristocrat. So then you he was could already run a business. an aristocrat. Huh? He was already an aristocrat. He was though. already an aristocrat, but you know, you would go and you would serve in the military to be like, this is an honorary thing to go serve in the military because eventually you become a noble by fighting in a war. If you did a good deed in a war, you got moved up, you became a noble. Once you were already a noble, you sent your children there to be like, hey, we still do war things and whatnot. And then after that, they would be moved into the court of the kings, especially during this time in which they would kind of court the king's interest, do politics, uh, swirl some wine, uh, dance a few parties, marry a few people, and then eventually have kids and send their sons to the military for a short time. So I guess in a way then, Saad going to the military was kind of in line with that track. He was already an aristocrat, right. but it was kind of furthering his rank, even though he's kind of a scuzzy little kid. Right. He is he just following to... that path that is part of aristocracy in one way, shape, or form. Correct. Saad was commissioned as a sub-lieutenant soldier at age 15, which is not normal. That's You only get that like if you are aristocracy. Well, he was. I mean, yes, of course. I mean, so this was all just a show. Our son is doing the right thing by joining the military. Even Look though how he fast he's ranking to. up the ranks. He's doing so well. And then, what, in 1756, he was commissioned as, what was it? A cornet. And then, shortly thereafter, he became the colonel of a dragoon regiment. Oh, like the book I read with Simplicimus. Yep. Our good old Saad fought in the Seven Years' War. Yay. Woo. And then, just like our good old Simplicimus in... 1763 abandoned his military career at the age of 23 and at the end of the seven years war so from what i understand Saad was in the military actually for quite a long time from being like an early teenager to an early adult essentially i think that's part of where he got his more um criminal predilections because in war you can get away with even more things no, uh, at this time, what I mean by criminal predilections is attraction to another man. Ah, which 
was punishable by death in France around this time. Because... And when you're in the trenches with your comrades, it's acceptable to want to find warmth with another body, regardless of the sex. Correct. So I think during this formative time, he might have... I don't think he saw any horrors. I think he was behind the front lines. I don't think he, he had was probably to... He was in a cushy enough position that he was like, he's probably the military. Right. But there probably wasn't, uh, like, sex workers coming and visiting, like, every night having debaucherous, like, acts going on all the time. It was probably mostly just sitting around being all like, hey, Pierre, what are you doing? <laughs> you want to smoke? Yeah. Liberté, égalité, fraternité. Come later. Not quite yet, but it'll come I know, later. I know. I'm just thinking, like, you're with your brothers in the trenches. I don't think he was in the trenches. I think he was in the tents. I was being metaphoric, but yes, yes. You're with your brother in the tent, and you know what happens on camping trips. Everyone knows what happens on camping trips. <laughs> well, after Saad abandoned his military post, he was kind of advertised around town. His father was still around and wanted Saad to fulfill that good aristocratic role. His dad made an ad to marry Saad off and basically judged all of these suitor ladies and decided on the family Montreuil as the most eligible bachelors. And so Saad courted the rich bourgeois magistrate's daughter uh, as a part of the prestigious alliance of money, social nobility. This is kind of going into the courting thing. Like I was saying earlier, like you go for the military for a little while fight in whatever war. There was always a war going on yeah, this time. No kidding. Um, then eventually you court, you marry, and then you start moving your way socially up and up and up, doing yeah. the normal courting So courting kind of dance. the Montreuil daughter was not necessarily marrying up, but it's marrying for the chance for both of them to move up. Correct. However... Join so- houses, more money together, that yeah, whole... Yeah, exactly. Power moves. But Saad was rejected by the Lady Montreuil's father. Oh, I would too as a father. I'd be like, no, no. <laughs> Get out of here. No, no. Nobody I, wants you, Saad. I heard what Pierre said. Oh. There was a rearrangement of marriage because the Montreuil father had another daughter, his eldest, René Pelagie de Montreuil, who was arranged to marry Saad instead of the Lady Saad favored. In 1763, Brene and Saad married. However, Saad still did his normal bullshit. He was starting to get a little bit, uh, a little bit more on the edges there. He was starting to get a little bit more violent. Maybe it was his military service. Maybe he started like he was like, I did all the normal things. Maybe I can get away with more stuff now. Even I think it was probably that, like you were saying, he moved his way up the ranks. He followed the aristocratic person's uh, predilect, like steps to achieve and as part of that he was like well i've gotten away with so much this far let's see how further i can how much further i can go now we won't talk about them very much in this episode but Rene and Saad did have two sons and one daughter and there is still an heir to the de Saad family today we won't be covering them but so you know those poor fox yeah there was a marriage with children we're not covering that because there were so much more outside of it. Oh, yeah. I, I, I think he probably treated those children the same way his father treated him. I would imagine so. Even though they had both parents, like, as far as we know, René didn't leave until much later. 
Saad was definitely an absent father. <laughs> Very yeah. much so. Especially with... Well, let's get into it. Let's get into it. Let's, let's talk about his first crimes. So it began with an affair with an actress, and he hired a bunch of sex workers. I mean, just as his dad did, like father, like son, right? Yeah, you do what you know. However, unlike his father, he started actually sexually abusing these sex workers. He took what he learned from his father of treating the people that he hired as objects and thought he could get away with more than that. Correct. How do you say this? Jean? Oh, yeah. Jean. Jean? All right. What they said. Jean uh, Testard. Ah, uh, yes. A young sex worker was hired by Saad after he was, you know, getting people in and out of his own house. And he was all like, hey, can I sodomize you? Let me fuck you in the ass. And then she was like, you know, I'm not really feeling... Oh, God. He locked her in his apartment, berated her for believing in God, masturbated into a church chalice, which I I guess he just had a collection of those around because he hated the church so much. Maybe part of his uncle being a priest. Oh, fair enough, fair enough. So, yeah, he had the connections. Uh, he blasphemed religion in general and ordered Testa to whip him. And now... Because of the flagellation, he enjoyed he it. that. Oh, yeah. So, he basically berated this woman, kidnapped her, did sexual blasphemed her god, that... and sexually abused her. Yeah. Now, according to Wikipedia, so take this with a grain of salt. Quote, during the 12-hour ordeal, Saad forced Testard to stomp on a crucifix while repeating, Bastard! I don't give a fuck about you! Under the threat of a scabbard as he recited various blasphemous poems throughout the night. Unquote. Then... Crazily enough, Testad reported Saad, which... She was on, able to get out. Yeah. Good on her. Yeah. Go go to the police, if you're ever in that kind of situation. He was in prison. However, just like in modern times, unfortunately, he was released from prison by the king. Just like a few weeks later for me, like... Oh, I'm just really sorry. I just needed to see God more in my life. And the devil just mm -hmm. overtook me that night. And I don't know. Please forgive me. I must atone for my sins. So he used his power in the right words to get out of a proper punishment for hurting someone. Awesome. And then you don't want to know what he did like right after that? I wonder what. He went into debauchery immediately afterwards. Of and course. So much so that he fell into debt, actually. Well, I mean, if you're having... He never had to work a day in his life for the rest <laughs> of, like, his entire career. Like, how... So you must have been hiring at least, like, 120 sex workers per night to fall into debt if you've never had to work. Maybe it's all those crucifixes he was, like, crushing. I have no idea. All the chalices he stole from the church? I, yeah, that was the first public scandal. But the first of the most notorious... Uh, yes, well, the, the first one ones of the that most wasn't, like, swiped under yeah. the rug... Yeah, he got away with this one, but the first that he would not actually get away with was soon to come. So, not the first, but one of the more notorious sex scandals that brought Saad into public scrutiny was that of Easter 1768. Saad offered a sex worker, Rose Keller, work as a housekeeper under the pretense she would be there to clean his bedroom. Oh, clean more than just his bedroom, probably. <sighs> of but, course. you know, it's... Yeah, come to my bedroom to clean. 
sex worker. And instead, he locked Keller up and sexually abused her for two days. Getting into more of his sadistic kind of mode. Like, saying things such as, Get ready to die. Confess yourself. Playing off of that hatred of religion that he had and likelihood that the people that he kidnapped and abused were still part of it, despite their professions. Right. And during this entire time, he was a lot more violent than the case we just covered. Right. He was whipping, and the whipping uh, also resulted in, like, bruises, cuts, bleeding. Yeah, most of the abuse focused on Keller rather than in the Testad case. There was abuse involved with her, but mostly focused on Saad as well. Right. It like was he was like trying a... to get her to abuse him while also abusing her. This was solely focused on Keller, as far as we know. He was outputting all of his rage and all of his sadism onto this person. Not only was there, like, cuts and whipping involved, once those cuts were nice, fresh, and open, what he would do is, like, oh, you're bleeding a little bit too much. Let me take some hot wax and pour it into your open wounds. Like, the most painful way to cauterize someone. Right. Like, you, I, I don't know if I many people I don't even know if cauterize it properly. Either. No, it wouldn't. I don't know if people have heard of this that are listening, but there's a thing called wax play where you use the heat of wax. Right. But in terms of this, if you have an open wound with hot wax that is probably not hygienic poured into that, yeah, it's probably not cauterizing. It will hold the wound, but it will burn you at the same time. And it's probably made of like pig lard and other materials. So you could get a severe infection thereafter. Not only that, it's probably putting a bunch of like unneeded pressure so not only that you have a wound now it's burning but also all the blood that's coming out and has nowhere to go and it's just pushing on the wax that's already like kind of adhered to your skin right so severe amount for two days two whole days luckily keller was able to escape and like to start she reported sad however she was bribed to drop the charges this is why it's so scary for people to report charges about these kind of things you know, someone just bribes someone, things get dropped, and you're like, what was even the point? It gets pretty intense. Yeah. One would theorize, at least as I have, this happened on Easter Sunday, and Saad was a vehement atheist, essentially. I think he and really hated it because maybe only his, like, maybe partly from his uncle, we don't know. His childhood was, like, pretty. I think he was the guy that was, like... Oh, everybody likes this thing? I want to be against it at first, at least. Yeah, he's kind of like trying to be an edgy, like kind of like a 4chan, <laughs> like troll kind of guy. Yeah, so I think the reason that he attacked Keller on Easter Sunday was probably not only to get his rocks off torturing somebody, but also in an effect to spite the church, especially if he believed Keller was a religious person, like with Testat. Yeah, we saw with uh, the Tessa case where uh, like he was like, hey, step on the crucifix. Like, I think he might have also felt a little bit of shame against like his like Catholic upbringing. And we can kind of get more into that a little bit later of why he felt shame. And I think his shame transformed into anger and hatred. And abuse. And abuse to other people as that festered inside of him. Right. An explanation, not an excuse, of course. Yes, an explanation. We're just trying to understand excuse. where he was at. And luckily enough, after the Keller case, people found out about what Saad did and reported it to the upper class, which, although Saad was entitled and convinced his actions and lifestyle was a defensible thing, that he owned Keller, he owned Testad, he owned everybody that he hired and abused, 
he was fulfilling he, what his dad kind of like set him up to do. Right. A libertine, not believing in like the church, owning, trying to be like he's followed the right steps through the military, and now he is like, I am owning. I'm supposed to. I'm the big boss. It, while also having maybe that shame that we'll cover later. Well, that actually brings me into the next point of his villain's arc, the revelation and death. I think Saad thought that he could get away with all of these things, but this is the first time that he does not. He was part of the upper class and aristocracy, but the report of the Keller case tarnished his name to the point where he was not only shunned by his family, but other upper classmen and basically evicted from uh, high class society. He was supposed to own his shit, but I think he owned his shit by going a little bit too far. A little bit? A little bit too far. A lot of bit too far. A little bit too far. Just a tiny bit. Just just a skosh. Just a <laughs> just a tiny skosh too far. I mean, and probably also eating his own shit, but we, uh, you know, we'll he owned his own shit. Now, different from the Testard case, Saad was actually sentenced to a fortress prison for his offenses. Oh, finally. And then later brought to Paris for trial. And it was the Saad World Tour. Oh. Oh, yes. Come see the Saad. Yeah, they basically publicly shamed him. He was put in prison, and then they dragged him around France for shame to show people, don't be like this guy. This is what he does to people and how he hurts them. But and I think most be- of the time they didn't care about the other K with uh, Testat because it wasn't uh, as sacrilege as the uh, Rose case. I, I mean, think- they were both. I, I would argue that Testat was more sacrilegious, but because they were able to hide it better, it didn't get up to the public knowledge as much as the Keller case. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, initially, I thought Saad would have liked this sod world tour shaming thing but considering he was mostly a sadist thus the term i think he kind of enjoyed being seen as this debaucherous man that did horrible things but it also really tarnished who he was as a person and made him fall in favor of the aristocrats right and that's where he held like a lot of his power right is with the aristocrats the only way he could actually get into positions where he could do the things he's been doing. That's also where all of his all of his temptations and motivations came from, being right. part of the aristocracy. And once your name is tarnished and you are shown that you're basically exiled from this, not actually exiled, but the aristocrats see how bad you are, they're not going to look at you the same way anymore. I think it's going to make him fall even further, though, because it's kind of when someone sees uh, there's a certain type of person, a name that comes to mind is Martin Shkreli. Martin Shkreli was, like, uh, known in the United States as the, uh, like, medical bro or, like, stock bro. And he took, like, a drug, raised it very high in price. Wasn't it insulin? Uh, it was not insulin. I think it was a uh, AIDS drug. I'd have to fact check on this. I, I'm not quite for sure, but it was a big scandal at one point. There was definitely market reasons to do this, but... Basically, he got vilified by the public, and instead of, like, apologizing, being very, like, sorry about it, correcting his actions, he just went full villain mode and tried to become the most hated man in America. And I think Desaad's going to kind of follow, like, very similar. Yeah. I mean, despite this shaming world tour being imprisoned, he continued to link pleasure and cruelty in this total disillusionment. He was brought up not being punished for his crimes until or his acts, rather, until he was in school, 
and then learn to turn that flagellation punishment into pleasure. And I think him being put on trial kind of, he thought himself delicate and his excesses refined. So I think he still thought of himself as above his shame world tour, for lack of a better term. Right. He's still like, well, I'm above all of this. Yeah. Now, in terms of submitting people to horrendous feelings and physical torture, I would argue that Cenobites from the Hellraiser series oh, like earlier. are more respectable than Sod himself, because at least they inflict pain on themselves, too. I mean, he he did ask for flagellation at one point from uh, Testa. Yeah, but did he go as far as Pinhead did? Okay, okay, okay. You win. You win. I think Saad dabbled in sadism and masochism, but he was mostly inclined towards the sadistic acts because he got off on using his power to hurt people. Of course, he would get hurt himself a little bit, but peeing in your mouth or whipping you a few times is nowhere near burning wax in your fresh wounds. Oh, yeah, and that's not even close to what we'll cover here in his life. So on that note... Let's get into Saad's theater arc. Theater arc? Yep. Saad was a theater kid, and we all know they're the cringiest, speaking from personal experience. Epilogue. Epilogue. No, theater kids are super cringy. I would know as being a former reformed theater kid. Trin and I both went through Theater Kids Anonymous. Yeah, and you know what? We've been getting slightly better every single day. And you know what? We never went full sod. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Never go full sod. (laughs) Never go full sod. Well, back to this guy. In 1768, his mother-in-law released him from jail because, you know, he married her daughter, this uh, fancy lady, part of the Montreuil house. I think the mother-in-law had the sanest brain of anyone here, of any of these aristocrats. What? Releasing him from jail? No, but I mean, she... Later on, she gets more sane. But right now, she released him from jail thinking, I would argue benefit of the doubt. Oh. Yeah, so... Gotta save my daughter's name. Exactly, exactly. So I'm just giving a little bit of foreshadowing. Like, the mother-in-law had the sanest brain here. Just released from jail. It was a one-time offense, you know. But she doesn't know Sod. Right. Now, and after- also, he was in debt. He has to pay off the debt somehow. How is he going to pay off the debts if yeah. he's in jail? Yeah, she doesn't want her family name tarnished because, based on the time, her daughter probably couldn't pay off the debts because her daughter probably wasn't allowed to work. Nope. Anyway, Saad was sent to a chateau in Provence, which he inherited from his dead father. Oh, maybe he, the only way for him to inherit that is if he could get out of jail and go ah. sign for the will. Ah. Galaxy mother-in-law's always thinking. Mm-hmm. But here he went full into his full theater arc. In 1772, he created this theater in his castle where he wrote, staged, directed, managed, and basically did like most of the roles of plays, plays, plays. for quote free thinkers unquote. 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 For oh, the likes like of Voltaire. Plays, or? But yeah, it was libertine plays. It was basically live pornos. Yeah, it was basically. And you know, yeah. like that sounds fine in practice, but when you start involving children. And... Yeah. Well, anyway, and um, all of 
the Provencal, I suppose, uh, aristocracy. They all came to see his plays. Because, and... of course, they were in on it, too. They liked that shit. Oh, he yeah. He was just the first one to bring it to stage. And you know that he was all like Harvey Weinstein in these plays. Oh, you want to be an actor here? Well, important people come to see my plays. Prove to me that you really want to be an actor in one of my shows. It seems very, very likely that he was doing that the entire time that his theater was open. Oh, yeah. I mean, if we know that he likes getting his rocks off by hurting people when he's in a position of power, that's like the least thing he could do as a theater writer, director, blah, blah, blah. I would say that's probably what he would classify as one of the more simple pleasures. Mm. Instead of one of the more complex or murderous pleasures. Right. He had this like little bit of a theater arc, but then we kind of get to Marseille. Yeah. In 1772, Saad was still in debt and he knew he needed to get money. He wasn't making enough bank off of his porno theater plays. So he went to Marseille and ended up getting involved in a new sex scandal. Oh, Wow. wow. Surprising. How shocking. He ended up organizing a party, which was really an orgy, orgy with his manservant, Leto. And Saad essentially fucked, whipped, and drugged sex workers with aphrodisiacs and fart pills. Can you repeat that real fast? Fart pills? Yeah. Is that a thing? The aphrodisiacs were so they could continue the orgy, and apparently there was a certain pill that could make the people gassy. And I think that was kind of Saad's kink. Based on his writings, he was really into kind of some scat play. Um, a lot yeah. of feces, excrement. So, you know, I, I, I wouldn't put it past him to do a fart pill, but I didn't even know that existed. Like a fart pill? I don't know if it still does exist. As far as I know, he drugged people with aphrodisiacs and fart pills and also ended up fucking his manservant, Latour. Now, oh, scandalous. Yeah. Saad thought this was going to work out well and be a great fun night for him. However, the sex workers at this orgy thought they were poisoned because their stomachs were upset from the fart pills, of course. So they escaped and reported this event, plus Saad's gay sex with Latour. Wait, wait, wait. Do you think the fart pills were actually just like some blue cheese, like in a (laughs) capsule, like a little... Maybe some beans? Yeah, yeah, it was like a little bit of beans just like hidden up and like really ruptured their stomachs a little bit. I have no idea what the fart pills were made of. Man, the other day you made some, um, like, uh, some ground meat. Oh my gosh, it ruined my stomach for, like, at least two days. Well, Are, didn't you, you know I to... have a fart kink? Oh my god! <laughs> how, how did I, I've been poisoned! I, I need a magistrate immediately! You should have reported me. <laughs> no, I think it was just old ground beef. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're shaming me. Maybe that was the most villainous thing I had done this past month. Anyway, so the women were poisoned, doubling over. They weren't poisoned. They were drugged. They weren't poisoned, though. I mean, kind of. I mean, drugged, poisoned. Okay. Same difference. And uh, everyone kind of knew Saad was uh, getting some sexy time with his, uh, was it a valet? Yeah. At the time, um, men sleeping with men was not really acceptable. It was punishable by death in France. Yes. So it was a little bit of a big deal. And 
He started running. Of course, as he does. He escaped to the king of Sardinia's estates, but was shortly thereafter arrested. What? Again? Again. Oh, no. This is a recurring trend for Saad if you haven't picked up on it. As a result of these actions, Saad and Latour were condemned to death in absentia, as both of them were not at the trial. Now, their crime was sodomy and poisoning. And because they were not there, and because... Probably more the sodomy than the poisoning. Of course. Of course. Because the people who were poisoned were still alive. I mean, that beef. I mean, even if it was two days on the toilet. Um, I, I probably wouldn't put you in prison for that long. You're just lucky I haven't sodomized you yet. Oh, well. I'm looking forward to it. Both Saad and Latour were burnt in effigy because they were not there. And so they decided to flee. He's on the lamb! <laughs> he, he's running away! Who would have ever predicted this? Escaping the law! Yeah, Saad fled to Italy, not only with Latour, but also with his sister-in-law, who just so happened to be his mistress. I mean, it's fine on Pornhub, right? Of course. Uh, stepsister. Oh, oh, stepsister. I'm stuck in the dishwasher. <laughs> oh, no, I'm, st- I'm stuck in the laundry machine. Anyway, once again, the mother-in-law comes back into the picture, of course, because... she it, She's the only one who has any sense around <laughs> this entire fucking family. That's what I've been trying to say this entire time. The mother-in-law was entirely correct <laughs> and it's justified. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. She started stalking Saad. She followed him everywhere he went, not only because he had kind of fucked over her own daughter, but also her other daughter because he fled to Italy with her and was accused of all of these things, which he did. And the also, mo- he's... And, and then, like, she's like, and then he's sleeping with man. Does he even love my daughters? And then he's kidnapping them. He's bringing then- disrespect to the family. <laughs> He was fucking a bunch of shit up, and the mother-in-law was not having it. He was degrading their status as aristocrats. So, she got him and his male lover, Latour, sent to prison. Now, this might seem out of the blue, but I think Desaad has a case of affluenza, actually. Is that like the flu? Uh, A little bit. It's more of a modern term. It's kind of like a social condition that kind of arises when you are grown up in a society that is very wealthy and successful and you don't really encounter the real world and it's really the inability of an individual to understand the consequences of their actions because of their social status or their economic privilege before and he's kind of starting to learn a little bit of that now there was actually a case in the united states in i believe texas where a guy got into a drunk driving accident and killed a few people and was not charged with manslaughter or murder or anything like that because his lawyer said that he had affluenza. I'm surprised that passed in courts. That absolutely passed in courts. It was just kind of like there's another court case in the United States called the uh, Twinkie Defense in which a guy murdered someone and it was because he was in a sugar low. There is some ridiculous arguments where very rich people can get off for the dumbest reasons possible and i think Desaad had a little bit of this affluenza going about him in his world tour on the lamb running away but the mother-in-law wanted to hunt him down and make sure that he paid for his debt she wanted him to serve justice 
because he had tarnished her family name to such an extent. He, he can't just keep getting away with this going to prison, going to run, coming back, being fine, being accepted into the aristocratic social thing. Doing sex crimes, doing sex crime, going, going to prison, running, right back prison. again. Which, funnily enough to mention it, he went to prison. And, and then, escaped. Right. And then rejoined his wife at his house. In France. Now... One would be, at least I was a little bit surprised that she would take him back in. Because of the whole aristocratic status, she kind of had to maintain that she couldn't divorce him so easily. Also, she can't divorce him at all because Catholics don't believe in divorce. Exactly. So she was kind of stuck with him whether she liked it or not. Whether he was fucking a man, whether he was fucking her sister... She didn't have to, but she ended up accepting him with open arms. But I don't think she had to do what we're just about to talk about. Where she became an accomplice to his lifestyle and his crimes. I think by this point, she had gone a little bit further than... uh, We've been giving her a little bit of a charitable stance. Like, she had to. She's kind of, like, in the situation, whatnot. Based on society, you could argue that. But what happens next? There's no argument that she completely becomes... She should not have condoned that. And there, there is really no excuse for what come in, uh, comes here in 1774, in which, with Saad, uh, they adopt five adolescent girls and a teenage boy from a neighborhood. And then, a kidnapping. Yeah, within kidnapping. their own neighborhood. Within their own neighborhood. They go, they round up five young girls from all the way from the ages of... Probably five all the way up to 14. And uh, a boy also within the same age, like age range. We don't actually know the ages of the girls. We know that the boy was a teenager. Still a boy, nevertheless. Right. And Saad and René, his wife, held them hostage in their chateau and forced them to commit various sexual theatrical acts for six weeks. Six so that's weeks. a month and a half where children had been abducted and forced to commit sexual acts on each other, likely on Saad and his wife, and their families not knowing what was going on, the children not knowing what was going on. I think there's literally no excuse for like this act. Absolutely so, not. I think we could have given the wife a little bit of the benefit of the doubt beforehand. But she's an accomplice at this point. She's helping... She's involved on multiple stages. This is probably one of Desaad's defining moments. Probably one of its most favorite moments in his life. I don't know if it's his favorite, but at least for us, it's the most defining moment where he actually, he has committed crimes thus far, but this is the largest scale. This is a very heinous crime. And fairly early on in his life, even before his career, really as a writer too. And I would argue that What he did here inspired his, quote, plot, unquote, for his most notorious novel, 120 Days of Sodom. Right. In which a lot of the plot revolves around kidnapping people, forcing them into sexual slavery, forcing them to commit acts that they would never do. And grooming them on depravity in various ways, shapes, and forms. And then saying, like, you will not be able to escape We've already hidden that from you. We've already locked all the doors. 
There We've is no- removed the path in which you got here so no one can find you. And I would assume, based on what we had read in this book, 120 Days of Sodom, Sod probably did something similar with his wife and these children. He removed their path to exit and hid all traces, which is a horrible thing. And then if they ever got out of line or ever tried to rise up against, then there were like severe beatings put into place and also probably torture just as much as the wax with yeah. Rose or even worse, perhaps sometimes death we know of. Now, the parents of these children that were kidnapped did report them missing. And one girl, one would think, luckily escaped Saad's prison house where he sexually abused these children for a month and a half. However, there weren't many people around, and Saad was close enough to his uncle's house. And where do you think the closest place was for this girl to run? Right to a priest, right? Right? Please help me. I encountered this horrible thing. I need to get out. Tell everyone. Right. You just see a man in the robes. You see a man that should be trustworthy. They should trust. You're a tiny child. You've just gone through these whole, like horrific events for at least a month. And who does it turn out to be? But Saad's uncle. Another... And Saad notified him in advance mm-hmm. to keep this girl until the scandal of this hostage situation dies down, which his uncle did. And interesting note is that this actually would be very contentious later in the French Revolution, very fast. Some would mention that this would become very apparent how the aristocracy was abusing not only the people monetarily within jobs, but also with their children. Was that kind of a breaking point for society? It was kind of a breaking point for society on multiple different levels with the king, with the clergy, with everything. In this specific case, it involved the clergy and the aristocrats because Saad's uncle was a clergyman mm-hmm. and also Saad was an aristocrat. Well, I would assume the uncle clergyman was part of that aristocracy based on the bloodline too. Yes, That is correct. So it was a mixture between both of those things, and this is used as, I wouldn't say a propaganda piece, but as a piece of saying, like, why are we taking this abuse from these people so high up? They're subjugating us. They're subjugating our children. Right. It was kind of like a more of a war cry Mm -hmm. that would eventually spill over into violence in the streets. Right. The authorities found out about Saad and his wife's actions, kidnapping these children and abusing them sexually, physically, and surprisingly, Saad was actually accused of kidnapping and rape. But the cycle of Saad repeats. Again and again and again. Commit sex crimes, flee the country, get arrested. What do you think happened to Saad? He fled to Italy again. As he do. So, in 1777, Saad, thinking that he was fine, that everyone had forgotten about him abducting six children into his house, or not his house, his castle, um, and all the commotion it caused in France at the time, he's like, hey, it should be fine. And then the mother-in-law the only sane person in this entire fucking family was like, hey, Saad, you're fine. 
you should come back. You know, everyone's forgotten about that whole abusing children thing and, like, keeping them locked up for a month and a half. Nobody and remembers what no. you did. No, you're good. You're and good. I guess he was stupid enough to believe it because he returned to Paris. Yeah, and then they imprison him in the dungeon of, how do you say it? Vincent's. Uh, and without a trial, at the age of 37. Let me guess. When he was in prison, he jacked off the entire time? Oh, uh, is that even a guess? I think that's probably just a given. But in this time, he had he he went to a fancy jail. It was a cushy prison. Oh yeah, it was kind of like let's just describe his prison real fast. He had a servant. He had furniture. He had books. I even heard that he could bring in sex workers. In a way, it was kind of like I know a, a parallel a little bit when good old Wally from episode two went out with Robert Walpole. He was put into the tower. He still had all of his political people visit him. So not the same situation, but for Saad, he had all of these luxurious comforts to kind of cater to his libertine lifestyle. He, at least from what I've heard about historical circumstances, it seems like a lot of very corrupt and evil people get yeah. a cushy, comfy prison sentence. Even Why? I have no idea. Even Hitler... When he was in prison, he was in prison a lot oh. before. Yeah, uh, when uh, during the early days of the Nazi Party, Hitler was uh, marching. I can't remember which city he was marching in, but he was arrested for treason at one point. And while he was being arrested for treason, he got shacked up in a nice, cozy place where all the other Nazi people of his party could come and find him, talk about like. Talk politics with him. He can get some exercise in, run around the court and whatnot, read some books. And in fact, in prison, that's where he wrote Mein Kampf. So I don't know how these like really evil people. Apparently, if you're so evil, you get a really nice prison. Yeah, but if you do a petty crime like having an ounce of weed on you. Oh, yeah. Then you're stuck inside of a, you know. Long term sentence without visitation. Or all of your rights stripped away, essentially. Hey, you stole a piece of bread? Welcome to the gulag. It's it's really uh, not fair. So it's that maybe that's why people become heinous villains, because they go, oh, worst case scenario, I get a nice prison sentence. I think so. I, I, I think that's really what it is about. I, it, it's really ridiculous. This is not a visual medium, but my eyes are rolling into the back of my head right now. Now, despite his relatively cushy prison sentence, Saad was bored, and he got increasingly violent with people in prison. Who would have ever guessed? Yeah. He probably wanted to subjugate his cellmates, or at least the people that were around him, you know, kind of execute his will as a sadist. It's probably one of the first times he was in prison for a long time. It was an extended period. Where the guards would treat him as a lesser, which is probably... It hasn't happened in a really long time no. to Saad. No. Whereas he's he was always been as a... seen as higher than or equal to, but he's a prisoner. He may have a cushy sentence, it's, but he's still a prisoner. It's the first time since the Jesuit. The Jesuit college. Yeah. Yeah. Which well, he was only there was for first, a short time. Yeah. Where he was first whipped. Now, Saad realized he would probably not get out of prison, at least for a long time, and almost went crazy. There was a bit there... He was so. He should have bored. never gotten out of prison for he what, shouldn't what he have, did. But foreshadowing, um, he will. He didn't know this. 
and he almost went crazy. He started getting into numerology to try and predict his release date. He was writing vehemently and ended up, of course, theater kid channeling it into his plays. Which probably came from his uncle saying, if you can't get your rage out, because he probably would have gotten beaten if he took his rage out on Mm -hmm. any of his other prisoners or the guards or anything like that. He probably heard his uncle's voice be like, just write. A mentor coming back. Yeah, it's his mentor saying, like, just write. And that is what he did. And that's where most of his important writings are going to come from. It was to overcome boredom, to execute his rage, and to fulfill the desires he couldn't while in chains, I would say. Now, he didn't do it in this specific prison, actually. He did it in the Bastille, the infamous Bastille. Yeah, in 1784, after Vincennes closed. He had his rebirth, his transformation here. Saad was put into Bastille Prison, where he wrote the infamous 120 Days of Sodom on a scroll with the intent to destroy the laws that put him in jail. Hey, the mother-in-law had the right decision. The only one... I, 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 I can't stress enough. Sorry, sorry. I'll back away. I'll back away. But his story of imprisonment as a metaphor for his own judge, clergyman, clerk, and financier slash banker go into the castle and engage perverse sexual acts locked inside of the castle as a part of the 120 days of Sodom. He yeah. has all of these people as the most corrupt, most villainous people. As the he highest sees them. points of power, essentially. So he's critiquing them, but I also think making it a metaphor for himself. I think because, it's really just... What? Go on, go on. Because these four people in power focus their debauchery on having... 42 victims that were taken captive, like Saad, and forced to perform perverse sexual acts on each other, and really delve into hedonism and abuse with increasing violence. I also think not only is he, I don't think he's necessarily critiquing, he is critiquing a little bit, but also kind of self-indulging. He's writing a fanfic. Just as we were saying earlier, he's mostly writing a fanfic here. Right. As far as we understand from what we have read of 120 Days of Sodom, it acts as a parallel of Saad's own life based on when he held the children hostage in his own castle. He probably didn't see himself as this banker or judge or financier or clergyman. He totally was. He totally He was, was in a position of power. So I think he was critiquing authorities higher than him, but also pulling off of his own experience, subjugating people lower than him. Maybe he thought he was the Duke, six foot tall, with uh, an eight inch diameter dick. Fourteen inches long erect. Oh, yes, of course. The most beautiful man who's ever fucked children? I I have no fucking idea. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I don't know if he would think himself that character, but a lot of 120 Days of Sodom, it seems like, was drawn off of Sod's own experience. Extrapolated and exaggerated, of course. But he was, like, making a fanfic of his own life. It kind of acts as a balance sheet showing how many fucked up things people can do in secrecy, in a way of calling out the powers of the state and regimes. Which I think 
some people would say, maybe like Beauvoir calling out like these types of things, saying like, this is maybe why he is a great philosopher and whatnot uh, of attacking some of the state regimes. And it was pretty popular at the time to attack the state, especially yeah. during the French Revolution or the build up to the French Revolution. However, in my opinion, yeah, he's kind of a terrible writer. It's more like a fanfic that you would find on like some of the weirder corners of the internet today. Yeah. We might go more into it later, but it starts as seeming like a fucked up porno and then getting into a list of the fucked up things you can do. But anyway, this was an unfinished work for Saad, and he ended up hiding this scroll of which he wrote 120 Days of Sodom on in his cell before Bastille was stormed. Right, and I think this is probably the only reason why we still have this today. Is because he hit it. He hit it, yeah. Yeah, because a lot of his writings were eventually destroyed, burned, or uh, sanctioned as being against the law. Yeah. And because he hid this inside of the Bastille, it took centuries after his death before it was actually found. Right. And it was a lost work. Nobody would have known Saad's writing had Bastille not been... No, I think they would have still known Saad's writing, but not this specific uh, piece, which is seen as his magnus opum. Or his most incendious work. Yes. Yeah, his most incendiary work. His most crazy, uh, shocking kind of work. I don't think anyone would have known about it had he not hid it here in Bastille. While Saad was at Bastille... He started causing disturbances. Of course, you know, last time he was in prison, he got really bored, started doing theater stuff, started kind of picking fights with the inmates. But at Bastille, it was not good for him because, of course, prison isn't good, but it wasn't a cushy sentence. Yeah, it was not a cushy sentence. So unlike his previous sentence where he had the the Hitler experience or (laughs) the... the Walpole experience. Here in Bastille, it was not like this. Uh, in Bastille, it was a pretty miserable place to be. Uh, there was shit everywhere. There was blood, inmates not having the best of times, guards beating people. Most of the time, it was political opponents being put inside of the Bastille. That's right. It was not a fun place to be. Right. So Saad, wanting to get out, started causing disturbances and eventually ended up spurring on some protests. He screamed out the window, quote, They're massacring the prisoners. You must come and free them! Which kind of took hold in people. Is this really happening within the prison? Are people really being killed? I'd also say right outside of the Bastille at this time, people were being murdered. Thus the smell of blood throughout the prison. Smell of blood throughout the prison. Also, he was in the Bastille for a long time before this comes about. Mm -hmm. This is starting to get more into the French Revolution. Right. Where the guillotine was pretty present. They would take prisoners out of the Bastille. They would come execute them on the street. And the smell of the blood that was not cleaned up would come and fumigate inside of all the prison. Yeah, so you almost get intoxicated by that, like, rust smell, that decay, like, it's a fume, and kind of deludes everyone who's there for an extended period of time, I would imagine. And so not only are people being killed outside, Saad is screaming from his bars on his prison, the tiny, tiny little bars that you can barely touch to see the outside world. 
screaming, they're killing us. They're killing us. Which, how very cute of Sod. <laughs> For someone who thinks he's a sadist or indulging in that kind of thing. Like, oh, I'm afraid of it. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. Finally getting some of his comeuppance. Right. Now, despite all of this, Saad was actually transferred to Charenton Insane Asylum, and his empty cell at Bastille was sacked during the French Revolution. Of course, on Bastille Day, July 14th, 1789. In the 120 days, in other texts, they had vanished almost entirely. I mean, they were hidden. I mean, you probably can't write very much in prison without getting heckled, of course. So Saad was like, oh, these are my most prolific works. I must keep them secret. It was also during this time that a lot of things that even if you could write, since there were so many political distance that were in the like Bastille at the time, you could write something that might cause a panic on the streets. Mm-hmm. Things were actually insane. Everything was being kind of shut down. You couldn't write anything. If you wrote anything, it could cause a riot, especially if you revealed a secret by another political opponent. So writing utensils could have been confiscated, banned, hidden. It was seen as a form of contraband. Right. Thus, that's why Saad hid it. Inside of the Bastille. Yeah. As a result, after Saad had been moved... To Charenton, and Bastille had been sacked, his work, 120 day, 120 Days of Sodom, was hidden for over 100 years before being rediscovered and later republished. But he thought, after this transfer, his works had been lost. And, you know what? Good. <laughs> good riddance. <laughs> but it wasn't a good riddance because they weren't actually lost, he just thought they were. Well... Yeah, I want him to think that it was lost. <laughs> he only thought that for a short amount of time, though. In April 2nd, 1790, Saad was freed from prison for some reason at around the age of 50. They were probably tired of his bullshit. You think you, you think he was so annoying that they were like, you know what, get out of here. I don't even want you in prison anymore. Stop talking about dicks in your butt when they're caught up. <laughs> that or the asylum was probably just too overpopulated at this time. Probably. That, yeah. th- that was probably mostly the case. However, his wife finally divorced him, which I bet, I bet that was on the advice of the mother-in-law. <laughs> yeah, like, get rid of this guy. He's nasty. <laughs> he, he keeps going to prison. <laughs> he keeps running away. He's tarnishing the family name. <laughs> He's in debt. Even his works aren't saved. Yeah. What is he doing? He's just fucking about not doing anything with life. Going you helped with the children. Don't let them know about that. Yeah. So he divorced his wife. And after being released from prison, Saad basically lost all of his higher class aristocratic privileges. He lost the title of Marquis. He lost the title of Count. And... He was kind of put not into squalor, but he really tried to maintain an essence as a citizen and as a writer. No, I don't think... I may be wrong here, but since this is the French Revolution, it might not be because of his actions necessarily. It was probably because of his actions. He was stripped like away from that. But also, this was a time period in which the aristocracy was being pulled down, being kind of 
Like, let's remove all titles from people and make everyone just normal citizen. Or at least that was the attempt. It so he was just work. kind of the aftermath of that. Not because he was out of prison and he was a nasty guy, but because all of people's titles were being removed as aristocrats. Not everyone's. I think he... It was a little bit of the both. Okay. So I think because he was a nasty guy and he was an aristocrat, it was They're easy like, to be like... You're the easy target? You're an easy target to be like, hey... Especially with Rose, the entire incident with that, the entire incident with the children and everything, being imprisoned, and that he was a former prisoner that was not freed on Bastille Day. It was very easy to target to target him as, you're an aristocrat, we need to bring them back down to our level so ah. they cannot abuse us nearly as much. Right. Which didn't really do much for him. He continued to write especially many letters, but he renamed himself. Let's do a little rebranding effort. I'm not Le Marquis de Sade. I'm not Comte de Sade. I am Citizen Sade. Which actually will work in his favor. Yeah. And after this rebranding effort on Sade's behest, being released from prison, continuing to write, he became one of the most prolific writers and pornographers, like we said, fanfic for a living, and ended up creating one of the largest porn machines in Europe. First with Justine in 1791, then Juliet, and Philosophy in the Bedroom. Which, if you remember, listeners, is what I read and thought was 120 Days of Sodom. <laughs> Which was one of his first big things. To be honest, 120 Days of Sodom, very scary book, I guess. For It's a very scary list. It's a very scary list, <laughs> most of the time. However, uh... I think philosophy in the bedroom actually hit me more my core, but I was also really young when I read it. So yeah. now I would say maybe it does not equate the same because we're in modern times, but I would argue that Janelle Monet did so much better with the emotion picture, dirty computer and challenging the philosophies of sex, gender and monogamy than Saad ever could ever because it was consensual and wholesome, thrilling, but also just it was better executed, and I think it translated in a lot different of a way. Like, with a lot of Saad's work, it focused on non-consent and abuse of minors, and, you know, I think... I just I, think I, Dirty I think Computer he, is a better representation of how to be liberated than Saad's work. I think with Philosophy in the Bedroom, he actually really cleaned up his act a little bit. Yeah, that is fair, he even though it's up still messed up. I think that's why it makes it a little bit more frightening. Uh, we can go into this later. However, philosophy in the bedroom, he frames it as consensual. Yeah. He frames it as consensual. However, it is still with minors, which inherently... Entails grooming. Yes. In which... We can get into a little bit of that later as we get into uh, more yeah, of his darker works and his writings. I'm just saying, if you want to be liberated sexually, intellectually, don't turn to Saad to enlighten yourself. Turn to Janelle Monet. I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I don't think that this guy is anyone to look up to. I think yeah. this guy... That's why we're covering him today. Right. So Saad goes... Something along the lines of, I desire, therefore I am. It's the crux of what he is writing, what he is trying to tell people. It's, it's very libertine of him. 
Of like, course. He treats everyone and anyone around him as an object, subject to his pleasure and his usefulness. Almost like... Or their usefulness to him. Correct. Which is much different from someone like Descartes, which is like, I think, therefore I am. Which is a lot more personal, a lot more introspective, rather than extroverted or desired and a little bit more chaotic. Right. I think the I think, therefore I am terms have a little bit like of a higher function in a way. The desire can be something of an instinctual nature, predator versus prey. And the I think, therefore I am is a higher abstraction for that, at least for me. Having Sod go, I desire, therefore I am, and that makes me righteous or, like, I don't functional. Think he, I don't even think he thought he was righteous. I, I think he thought that he was a degenerate, however, the one to enact that degeneracy, but I don't think he thought it was righteous. I think he opposed righteousness, and it's full. Well, I think in his opposition of righteousness, his degeneracy was his form of becoming righteous, in a way. I think he was a sad man trying to find control. No, no, I agree with that. I think it was that disillusionment where he's entitled and he thinks he's owed everything. He thinks by him being debaucherous, he gets to a higher point of enlightenment. Right. I think he's trying to find... Okay, in the code world, the best way to explain this is if you have a stack overflow. He is trying to find a stack overflow, but that's just going to corrupt all the memory and make the entire computing machine entirely useless at that point in time blue screen of death dear listener have you ever experienced a blue screen of death it's somewhere it's something very similar to that in which things don't make sense anymore that's what he's trying to achieve the sense of that nothing makes sense anymore instead of trying to find the perfect calculation in which everything operates flawlessly at the same time and perfectly and at least for me Hearing, I think, therefore I am, you can still have a stack overflow in a way if you're thinking too hard about something and you get lost in your own sauce in a way, but it's still more than operating on the base operation of desire. I think if you think, therefore you are, that means that your function is working perfectly fine and flawlessly every single time. Okay. And that there is no worries. But if you have a stack overflow... Your function is so messed up. It's so bizarre and not doesn't make any sense to the computer that the computer just crashes, debugs, and shuts down. I I, I think Sod was just mostly blackpilled. Or you want to explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I think he was mostly nihilistic. Okay. Yeah, he didn't really have any regard for a future for himself or other people he was just like i want to be the craziest bitch out there and he was always living to that next end Mm -hmm. instead of just being wherever he was yep he had no regard for consequences right and he was just kind of trying to up the ante and see how far he could go in terms of getting arrested but also the acts he did right well I think that would be a good uh, segue into how he had his final orgasm, the end of his life. Wait, wasn't his villain's orgasm just kind of all of his life? No, wasn't no. He just, like, I'm, off, I'm saying like... his last, his last well, hurrah. Or should I say, freaking off his entire life? 
<laughs> Don't worry, I won't barf in your mouth. <laughs> Hope not. All right. Well, he became a secretary of the revolution. Surprise, surprise, because revolutionaries have no brain at some <laughs> points. Some points they're really intelligent. Some points they are absolute batshit. He was part of the peak section of the revolution. And we know they got smart about revolution. Uh, or at least Saad did. He knew that there was an in here. He can go from back, uh, back from being citizen Saad to be something like someone in power. Yeah. Again, he could find... Revolution was his way up. And that was the way for many people inside of the revolution, many unsavory figures, to move their way up, to slimily like push their way through the social order, through writings, publications, saying that you're part of such and such club, you've done these writings and whatnot, and then move your way up into a position of power again, becoming the new aristocrats of society. Mm. While Saad was speaking on behalf of revolution, I don't actually think he was in it for the politics. I think he was in it to spurn the church, and like you said, to get back into his own seat. So in 1793... Saad claimed that he was opposed to the reign of terror, which I think is a little bit convenient. I think he can kind of see the tides changing of against uh, Robespierre, who was uh, the leader of the reign of terror at this time. And because of this, Robespierre was like, oh, you're attacking me? Me? The leader of the entire movement? <laughs> well, I'm going to remove your post. I'm going to remove your writings. And also, you're a moderate. Which, do you think that Saad was a moderate during this? For all his touting about his libertinage. Doing whatever he wanted to do. Do you think he really supported the king? I mean, I know he was a noble in his past. He supported himself. Yeah, let's be real. He supported only himself. But... Anyway, no matter what, he was imprisoned for almost a year after this. Luckily for Saad, in 1794, he was released after the end of the Reign of Terror and just so narrowly escaped guillotine by chance the day before Robierre was overthrown. And eventually on March 6, 1801... My homeboy. (laughs) My homeboy. Napoleon sent out warrants to arrest any anonymous author of Justine. He now, knew. you want to explain a little bit of why this is relevant to Saad? We'll, we'll explain how this ends this Saad, but why, do you, why did Napoleon send out these warrants? So Because Na- Tran also loves Napoleon. Uh, yes, I also. So it's another person. I'm really interested at this time period in history. Uh, I'm also really interested in the end of republics, which at this time was the end of a republic where Napoleon took. Anyway, getting out of some things, Napoleon sent out this thing for the author of Justine because he thought it was attacking his wife, Josephine, because there was a few allusions inside of the novel to his wife, who was a sex worker at one point. Not necessarily a sex worker of normal stature however maybe a sex worker of the higher order to the nobles to the higher class people and he thought that 
Justine might be attacking some of his character by attacking his wife's character. Ah. And now, Justine is not entirely about that, but there are some attacks to him, uh, or at least to Napoleon's wife, during this time as he's writing um, Justine and also... Juliet. Juliet. So Sada is throwing some shade. It's subtly veiled. He's publishing it anonymously. But Napoleon it, knows. Everyone in, everyone in uh, Paris knows that it's... Who's this guy that's writing this lesbian non-fanfic or this smutty stuff? Right, it's Sad. And also, Napoleon probably has talked to some of the old aristocrats from the old order and knows some of Sad's past. Right. And he might be thinking like, what if my wife was in the situation? Also throwing shade on some of my wife. And so basically Napoleon throws out a hit list. Yeah. So and to speak. That hit list works to Napoleon's favor. Saad is arrested in 1801 at his publisher with copies of Justine and Juliette in his hands. And of course, what happens to Saad after a controversy? Oh, does he run? No, this time he gets imprisoned again. Oh, it's because my homeboy <laughs> doesn't play around. Saad is imprisoned, and in 1803, his own family declares him insane, and he is transferred once again to Charenton Asylum. So now we finally get a resolution. I wouldn't say atonement this time. Well, sort of. He feels a little bit of resolution in terms of he gets, Saad gets back into plays, he's doing more smut shit in prison, and getting people to perform it. But his end is nigh. Oh. Wait. Are you saying that he might get his atonement because of what happens from his son that we have entirely neglected this podcast? Sort of. At least for me, his villains are atonement and resolution is that at 74 years old, Saad dies destitute in prison in 1814. Now, that doesn't sound like much. You know, a lot of historical villains just die and kind of get away with their shit, or at least for Saad, he's in prison. He, I would think, continued to do his theater arc until the very end, but the final resolution is that his eldest son, when coming to regain his belongings found his works and burnt them all at burn, least baby. what he knew burn baby burn yeah burn baby burn so Saad's family disgraced him they put him in this asylum they Wait, declared his, him his insane his family disgraced him yes i would say he disgraced his family and his family well finally. he disgraced his family <laughs> they disowned Saad. okay fair enough that's most of how Saad lived his life. Debaucherous. It's kind of a wild ride of it, debauchery, fleeing the law, and getting put in prison again and again and again. I think this is what most people think of when they think of a villain. Who would you argue is the hero against Assad? Or was there one? No, oh, Napoleon, my homeboy. Of uh -huh. course. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that leads us to the last point in the villain's arc, which is Saad's legacy. Now, for one, he was banned in France until 1960s. Oh, you mean his writing? Yeah. I mean, I hope he isn't still alive. Is he a vampire? Is he, no. Oh, is, is, is he immortal? Is he's he still jacking of off? Like, 
He better not be. Jesus, that'd be some gross-ass sperm. <laughs> I mean, no. he would enjoy that. He was banned. His writings were banned in France. Now, as we mentioned earlier, his writings were lost for about 100 years, but they were found and republished, but they were banned until 1960s in France. Like we mentioned way earlier, we've come up with the term sadism or sadist simply off of his last name. His poor family, who still lives to this day, is cursed with knowing that down their lineage... They had someone who has a word named after their name. Right. Not only was he rediscovered by surrealists after being unbanned, but he also brought sexual literature to popularity. Or at least you can find 120 Days of Sodom in most bookstores. Not that it's great. He also inspired Freud in psychoanalysis on sexual perversion. But doubling back a little bit, Because we're talking about his legacy, and we were subject to the abject horror of listening to 120 Days of Sodom today as an audiobook, do you want to get into a little bit of the contents of that? Sure. Uh, Do you want to cover 120 Days of Sodom first, or do you want to cover Philosophy in the Bedroom? Let's cover Sodom first. So, here is a little bit of the legacy of 120 Days of Sodom. First, it starts out really boring. It's an old book. It's a very old book. And scandalous for the time, though. Scandalous for the time. And mostly describes... Four men in positions of power, as we mentioned earlier. As mentioned earlier. We have a preacher. A bishop. A bishop. A duke. We have a banker. And, and a we, judge. And a judge. Or a magistrate. Yeah. Now, all of these men are very intricately described with their sexual preferences. And their dick sizes. <laughs> and their dick sizes. The bishop is only attracted to men. The duke, Adonis figure, very... Mm. Do you think Saad was projecting as he was writing this? I think he was. I'm pretty sure he was. Which also is funny. I say Adonis figure, but also there's a guy named Adonis inside of this book. Yeah. However, there's also the banker who doesn't seem to do much. All that's really described by him is that he has a tiny dick... And that he really likes getting oral pleasure or giving oral pleasure. It's it's really not well described. And then we have the judge, which I see as a Vulgon from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Just like he is like his skin is described as kind of like hanging down and also like like trying to escape his body at the same time. And that. Like he, when he, like he opens the flaps of his cheeks, his mouth is just covered in shit because he really likes to eat shit. Shit. Before you continue on, we mentioned earlier about Saad's fart kink. Not my fart kink. I don't have a fart kink. All right, keep telling yourself that. But a lot of one hundred and twenty days of Sodom. At least I would say. of it is just talking about scat play. So I... Scat play and pedophilia. Well, there's more pedophilia than 15%. But 15% is scat play just on its own. And I think that was something that Saad is really into as being debaucherous. Obviously, he was into pedophilia as well. Oh, yeah. Let me finish here. Yeah. So we have these four dudes. They're going through their libertine lifestyle and discussing... How libertinism is the most 
excellent way to live life and how they love eating shit and <laughs> fucking people and how drinking piss and raping kids and like hey uh bishop why are you going to fucking dudes that's like so lame anyway they make fun of the bishop the entire book i which i, I think is kind of interesting because Saad involved himself as we heard earlier with lato he was fucking men as well but throughout this entire book he shits on the one gay guy and it's like are you trying to overcompensate for yourself or what and i think maybe it was because Saad saw himself as a superior bisexual man maybe he was because he was imprisoned i don't know it's weird it's it's super bizarre i the whole book is weird it's not good writing it has no we're telling you the basic plot, but most of the book isn't it's the plot. It's not much of a plot. Yeah. It's not much of a plot. And also, think about the logistics. As I go through this, think about the logistics. None of this could happen. None of this could possibly happen. Well, I mean, the six children being uh, kidnapped. There six, but yes. Yes. Anyway, that happened. But in this book, that didn't happen. Anyway, we are getting distracted yeah, talking about some distracted. of the overview. Let me, let me yeah. get through the There overview. are four people in a position of power that plot to kidnap and hire a bunch of people to go to their castle and experience acts of torture and sexual debauchery they don't invite them they no they invite chefs and like old madams but they kidnap children they do more than that not only do they hire a bunch of servants and whatnot because they're all rich assholes which i don't know how you have a shit mouth uh and or a judge that is respected and somehow have you seen the judges in the u.s Continue. I would name a name, but I can only think of the first name, so... Continue. So these four men, what they do is they they have all of these, like, really fun evenings of where they do debaucherous sex stuff. And they decide it's not enough. How can we up the ante? And then the Duke, the Adonis, the self-insert for <laughs> Marquis de Sade, comes up with a great idea. How about we all marry each other's daughters... And then, uh, fuck them. And then, after we do that, what we're gonna do is we're gonna go, and then we're gonna get women of every age. Because fucking each other's daughters is not enough. Yeah. We're gonna hire old crones. We're gonna hire... Knowledgeable madams. And then steal children. And steal children. Great. But it doesn't stop there. Not only do we have to have equal women, we also have to have equal men. Including boys, too. We have to have boys. Uh, we have to have what's nicely known as the fuckers, which is not you, dear listeners. You are not the fuckers, dear listeners. You're a fucker, just as me. Not those fuckers. Fuckery all around, but not the, to these guys. So, after we go with this, they set up this entire big castle way it's in out. a forest. Isolated from society, essentially. And they bring not only the people they've hired, but also the people they have kidnapped. And it takes an entire year to kidnap them. And they go into. They're planning this entire shit for a year. And not only that, they go into detail about how they kidnap every single person. They sometimes they rob a carriage, kill everyone in the carriage, except for the young boy and grab them. Sometimes they drown their moms. While they're while they're grabbing like the young boy or something like that, they're at he looks like he has a nice ass. Some Yeah, sometimes the mom, when they're capturing a young girl, they go, oh, the mother was walking with the young girl, so he just pushed her into the river. 
So all these people are compiled into the castle. I think the count is 42, if I remember correctly. There are yes. many people involved. And this has all been planned out precariously by Saad for his story. And they're gathered and told that they will be basically slaves sexually for these four men. And then, I'm not going to bore you the details, they have an itinerary that happens every day. Someone gives a speech to them in which they have an entire itinerary and be like, you'll do this sexual act at this time and this sexual act at this time. Also, I didn't mention one of the crones, uh, my favorite crone, uh, which (laughs) is the old lady in the storyteller who uh, gives narratives during this entire time. It has one hair, one boob, I think only one leg. She's pretty great. She gets some really interesting stories going through the rest of uh, 120 Days of Sodom. After the group is assembled and the four people in power tell them what is going on, the crones essentially give their experience of debaucherous lifestyles. Before... Actually, wait, no. I think I might be wrong. It might, it might be one of the madams, actually. But the crones are still there. Yeah. The crones are kind of to babysit the children. Yeah. Yeah. It's all been planned out, so. Anyway, the madams are there to tell about their debaucherous lifestyle to, quote, inform, unquote, the youth and basically tell them about how they got into lives of debauchery before getting into chapters about various hedonistic elements that Saad wanted to describe ad nauseum. But before we go through this, uh... After the itinerary is set out, we go through one explicit day of how things will be done. Let's go through it fast in the itinerary of just one day. In the morning, they go to the tiny girls' chambers. If their chambers are not clean, they beat and torture them. If they found out that any of them have slept with any of each other, they beat and torture them. Then, after that, they go to... The boys' chamber, if they find out if anything happened there, they beat and torture them. Same thing, um, they find out that in the first day in the women or in the girls' chamber that someone had not cleaned up properly or they just, I guess, didn't make the bed quite good enough. And so they order 120 lashes for the next day. So after that, they go to lunch in which... The judge, the guy who really likes to eat poop, decides to have about three bottles of wine uh, while one of the fuckers, not you guys, remember, fucks him in the ass. I I guess I really don't have to go through all this itinerary. It gets really detailed. No, I don't think so. Yeah, it gets really detailed. If you want to read it, you can, but it's a very detailed itinerary that gets into a long list of perverse sexual acts. And... There is for those of you, amputations, there's, it, it gets pretty intense. For the sake of brevity, how about we list at least three things that are mentioned in this book. The rest of the plot is that day, and then it goes into the madams telling about their distinct sexual activities and ways to be hedonistic, essentially. But for the sake of brevity, I think we should cover the top three that stick out with us i'll let you start then all right so one of the more simple pleasures 
as it is divided up into many different pleasures. The simple pleasures, the complex pleasures, the criminal pleasures, and the murderous pleasures. And then eventually the devil's pleasure. So in one of the simple pleasures that stuck out to me is, is this really simple? Uh, I am not quite sure because it really disgusts me, is jizzing on top of a crying child's face. And what kind of pleasure was that? A simple pleasure. Okay. So if you deem that your own simple pleasure, please get some help. Please get some help. Talk to a licensed therapist. And stay away from children. Well, one I can think of in more of the criminal pleasures, he lists criminal pleasures. They're not necessarily as crazy as that, but criminal in this sense was against the church. A lot of gay sex was against the church. So in this sense, there was one in which a man takes a shit on a plate and then he is eating his own shit as another man penetrates him from behind and then he is made fun of as he finishes the last bite of his shit he then ejaculates this kind of thing happens again and again and again and you kind of get desensitized it's a huge list of like literal shit like this now we'll do a little palate cleanser i can't remember which quote pleasure this was is this one of the more uh, this was uh, classified a as a complex pleasure yeah. but this is this should be at least a little bit light-hearted for you listeners uh, we were now, dying today because like laughing to this the now, only kind of laughing matter in this kind of situation sod in some instances was accused of bestiality in the sources we have read we had not seen evidence and in the sources we had read about his life we had not seen evidence of this either our theory was he was trying to kind of make satire of people accusing him of bestiality, but in one of his more complex pleasures, a man must fart on a toast with a dog nearby. However, the dog is not involved in any way other than being present. So, if I you fart on that. toast with your dog around, you're a sadist. <laughs> And I can't believe that that... So random! He put that as a hierarchy above the child thing. (laughs) (laughs) And people think this is one of the greatest pieces of literature. Okay. Farting on toast, one of the greatest literatures of all time. This guy was in the scat play. I don't fucking know. Now, some of uh, his other works... So, that's basically... Basically, what I described with the itinerary and the 120 days of Sodom, that's mostly what it is. It's really incoherent. You can imagine some 4chaner writing it on, like, a forum and then just, like, listing out all the most depraved shit, like, the hardest shit they can think of. Yeah, like we said, I think it's a fanfic of Sod's own interaction kidnapping a bunch of children and bringing them to his house and him thinking about all of the fucked up things he could do. Right. Or recounting fucked up things he did we don't know one of his other books philosophy in the bedroom which i found more horrifying is mostly a book about grooming now i haven't reread it i read it a long time ago i listened to it recently and it's essentially the telling of a brother and a sister who want to groom a young teenager so a child uh with an older gay man involved 
the older gay man does not show up. So it is these two siblings grooming a teenager and trying to teach her ways of depravity and, quote, libertinism, while also spouting a lot of philosophies rejecting the church, which, you know, I reject the church, that's fine, but the grooming of this child and forcing her to engage in various sexual acts is what makes it very hard to listen to. Which is very reminiscent. to Saad's earlier acts with young girls, or people in general. Right, and I think that's, and it's kind of hard. I, I found that one a little bit harder to read, but it's also a little bit harder to describe because they're slowly like pulling her in and then she's also kind of going out of it and then coming back into it and guy I'm getting all mixed up. Yeah, that's a very brief description of it. If you really want, there is an audio version an hour long on YouTube, but I would say it's not very... At least for me, it is a better read than 120 Days of Sodom. Definitely. But that is, like, giving it the most credence possible. I would not read these on my free time if it were not for this podcast. Like, I'm only reading these because of this podcast. If if you really just want to understand the guy, you can read it. And that's what we did for you. And I don't think we're summing it up the best in terms of the works that we read. But it's also really hard to sum up. So, He's also. It's not only hard to sum up because of the content. It's not really that. It's also he's just a really shitty writer. He. It's very bland. I mean, this is like seventeen hundreds. No, no. It's not even just because it's the seventeen hundreds. Karl Marx is easier to read <laughs> than this guy. Like, like you were saying earlier, Sod's plot points, at least with one twenty days of Sodom, was all over the place. It starts sounding like a plot. Also like a porn, and then just goes into a listicle. And it's like that, at least for the first of his writings. Yeah. He, he doesn't have a consistent plot. There's a ton of plot holes. The logistics don't make sense. Um, what I read of uh, Juliet was basically starting off like a lesbian non-fan fiction with a child, and then getting into 40-page rants about why Christianity is bad. So, of course, at the time... That was very maybe enlightening for some people, maybe obscene for some people. But reading it nowadays is just very hard to palate for a variety of reasons. I'd rather read James Joyce. That's all I'm saying. All right. James Joyce, easier to read. Finnegan's Wake, probably easier (laughs) to read. There is a few pop culture things that we've seen Marquis de Sade in. Oh, yeah. He's depicted quite a bit. And, I th- yeah, he was in Creed or Assassin's Creed. Uh, it was Unity. Yeah, it was in Assassin's Creed Unity. He was the Rat King, I believe. And he was, like, kind of, like, in the sewers, like, you know, giving you tips about all the aristocrats and giving you hints about some fictional world. But it really well, like, developed him. I think it may have well developed him, but... It- at least from the cutscenes I had seen of Ascreed with Saad in it, it painted him in a good light. In a, well, not necessarily a good light, but not as nefarious as he is in reality. I, I think the reason for that is that they know that it's going to be played by people of a younger age. Yeah, teenagers. And they don't want it to be as like, oh, you can't play Ascreed because it's rated X. 
Right. So you can't delve into. Yeah, that's fair. And the easiest way to show how he is as a human being is to put him into the dirtiest costume possible. Have him in a brothel and be like, yeah, he was yucky. But yeah. Uh, yeah, yucky. That that that's the e- that's the easiest way. For fourteen way. year olds playing ass creed, yeah. That's the easiest way to describe. Now I guess if we're trying to wrap up his actual legacy for one, of course, as we covered earlier, he introduced what libertinage was or the philosophies of it to the public. And he also at least Or at least in- made it popular. Yeah, yeah. There, there were libertines outside of Saud, like, like in the England. Earl of Rochester in yep. England. But he put the writings to predominance, at least in one way, shape, or form. But through his writings, he also questioned a lot of morality as kind of an enlightenment figure, as one would say, or a disenlightenment figure, as we have argued. He. But didn't Socrates already do that? Question everything. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, sorry, I'm, I, yeah. I'm being a little bit petty. But one of the like most prominent things I noticed from Saad's writing, uh, not as much in 120 Days of Sodom, but in Philosophy in the Bedroom and Juliet, it's very much kind of tooting your own horn about how fucked up the church is, which, yeah, the church is fucked up. We're not going to disagree that. But, but you going don't have on to a tirade about to it. Them. Like, you don't yeah. have to be so fucked up that you meet their fucked up. Like, Yeah, and through this, he also questioned morality in general. I think it also really influenced a lot of, like, Western nihilism. Yeah, that's... In the, in the sense that, who gives a shit? Like, we're all preying upon each other. We're all a little bit sadistic here, and we're all looking for our own pleasure, and we're going to use each other to do that. And it's more of American psycho, in a sense. Fair you enough. can actually see a lot of American psycho inspired by, like, his works with a mixture of, like... You know, crime and punishment, obviously. So it's like kind of like crime and punishment mixed with a little bit of sod. Because he can't find any pleasure in American Psycho without trying to go into excess and hiring yeah. sex workers and like trying to torture them and like, you know, or trying to find his place in a company in which he doesn't do anything. Now, a lot of people, at least. After his works were reintroduced into French society, into popular society, argued his works to be very liberating and feminist in a way, such as Beauvoir. I hate Beauvoir. (laughs) Sorry, that's a personal bias. I hate Beauvoir. It's a personal bias, but you also read part of an essay that she wrote, Why Must We Burn Sad? And she really glosses over some of his more horrific acts. She really explains uh, a lot of his life, probably a lot more in depth than we have on this podcast. So she actually has done her homework pretty well. And she mostly focuses on the sexual acts as being liberating, but she doesn't go into the facts of subjugation, into the child abuse, into the child abuse. She kind of glosses over those things in favor for, um, more of the opening of sexuality within society and i think it's because she's trying to prove her point and try to use sod as a vehicle in order to move that thing however i will say i did skim the essay i did not analyze the essay however when i was skimming the essay i don't think 
Beauvoir analyzed saw that well. Fair enough. At least as far as we've analyzed, most of Saad's writing was fanfic about his life and about lesbians, nuns, children, and literally shitting on everyone because that's what he got his rocks off to. Also about questioning morality and religion, but to the extent of harming others. I guess to conclude Saad's overview for this podcast, some argue he is evil, like we do. We are arguing he is a villain, and I think, or at least I hope, the acts that we have described to you have kind of proved that. Some, like Beauvoir and other philosophers or commentators, argue he is the champion of liberation or feminism or sexual freedom. But all in all, he is figured to be the first of the modern écrivain maudits or damned writers, and I think that's kind of where he will stay. So let's recap some of the villain's arc for this debaucherous motherfucker. We have his threshold, his trauma, which is when his mom left the family for the convent. Which inspired a lot of his writing that was anti-church and talking about nuns living debaucherous lifestyles because I think he was maybe projecting a little bit thinking oh my mom left me to do this stuff it might have made him abandon a little bit of his morality right especially like being left alone with the servants and not all of his siblings being dead his father being absent his mom skipping town Which brings into his mentor, where he had two. His priest uncle teaching libertinage, and his dad also teaching him further debauchery after his mom abandoned them. His father sharing lovers with his son to teach him the acts of libertinage. Then he had his temptations, or motivations, which in early life was very abundant. Being rich, brought up on the libertine ideas has uncles, had sex workers all around him, was never really punished, was arrested and imprisoned a few times, but always released almost immediately. Right. He got away with a lot of stuff. Although he got away with most of his crimes, I would say his revelation in death was when he committed the acts on Easter, with the Keller affair, where he was reported for those and shunned not only by his family but also upperclassmen, imprisoned and then put on trial to be paraded through France on a shame tour, essentially. The Rose Keller affair, correct? Yes. And then his rebirth or his transformation when he went into writing most of his most famous works with 120 Days of Sodom, also, Justine and... Juliet. Juliet and Philosophy in the Bedroom. And I think this rebirth happened while he was in prison, but the villain's orgasm, which might be a bad turn of phrase for this episode, I would argue was kind of his entire life. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. A little bit. Oh, yeah. Based on everything we've heard so far in this episode, or we've talked about rather, his upbringing, his writings, 
Everything Saad did was for his utmost pleasure and his release without consideration of anyone, be it a hero, be it general civilians. He was doing everything for his own self-pleasure. And I think his atonement was all because my boy, Napoleon, <laughs> okay, throwing him back into jail for the rest of his entire life for 13 years at least where he died destitute in prison. A lot of times, at least for people like Walpole, their atonement and resolution is kind of just dying of old age, but Saad definitely left a legacy. He influenced a lot of philosophers, he inspired the term for sadism, and was deemed the first modern damned writer. And his ideas, his practices still kind of have a hold on the public today. I think that brings us pretty well into the villain's archetype. A little bit of a segue, but we are introducing this as a little bit of a newer... We've talked about the villain's archetype before, but we actually have some coined terms for them now. And I think the first one that is most fitting for Saad is the Beast. Not to be confused with Mr. Beast. Oh, uh, oh God, no, Mr. Beast is an angel. <laughs> okay. The Beast archetype usually is something unleashed or stalking with the intent to kill, with the instinctual need to feed. Now, Saad never murdered his victims, but he had this instinctual... But that we know of. Yeah, as far as we know of. But... He had this instinctual need to feed sexually and to abuse people and output his will and subjugate people. Now, he didn't stalk with the intent to kill, but rather with the intent to inflict pain on people to the utmost. If you are at all familiar with Warhammer, Slanesh is basically sod, just deified. Anyway, and that was a really deep cut. That's okay. I would also argue, not only in terms of his actions throughout his lifestyle, he was a beast built to inflict pain on people, but for people who find his writings as horrifying as we do, I mean, that's why we're covering as a villain, him as a villain, it's painful to read what Saad wrote. Even for us being very desensitized people, it's hard to read because it's poorly written and it's gross. Yes. Oh, especially another with, child, another more shitting in mouths. Another... Especially with the context of he actually did stuff like this in his lifetime. I think that's what makes it more horrifying. Exactly. So, which means that he is very disturbed, which means that he is the disturbed. Yeah, which is another of the villain's archetype that I think fits to Saad well. Which is evident in his psychological problems. I mean, he obviously had a lot of psychological problems that, like, really messed him up. I think that sadism used to be used as a psychological disorder, but we would probably personify him as someone who had antisocial personality disorder, according the to the DSM-5, age. according to modern times. Someone that doesn't necessarily have empathy with other people and treats other people as objects which Saad did and a lot of times this can be in a sexual manner as seen in various serial killers throughout modern times mm -hmm. Saad was definitely a deeply disturbed person especially when it came to sexually inflicting pain 
and torture and assaulting people and children. Really, he considered everything and everyone his own property. Which he learned from a young age, and that continued throughout his lifetime. But he took it a step too far. Yeah. And that's where maybe sadism was therefore classified for a short amount of time as a psychological disorder. Right. Now, the last archetype I think that would fit Saad would be, this might be a bit of a deep cut abstraction, the personification of evil. As it's defined, it's usually pure evil, offered little to no backstory or motives, nothing more than performing evil doings to oppose the hero. Now, there's not really a hero in Saad's story. He was his own hero and our villain. But we did have a backstory with Saad. We discussed how he was brought up. But throughout his lifetime, he performed evil and villainous acts to oppose not only the church, not only his family, but the government, and to prove he was the most libertine, the most debaucherous, and the most depraved. And I know that we tried to explain some of his evil, but there's at some point where you can't really explain why he did the things he did. Yeah, we don't know his inner workings other than what we have read that he wrote. And that's pretty telling enough. And evil can also be very subjective. However, in the case of Saad, it's almost become synonymous with evil itself. So I think the personification of evil really fits here. Yeah. Now, getting into his villain alignment and tactics, I would say Saad was a chaotic evil kind of guy. You know what? I actually agree with you. I think this is the first time we ever agree on (laughs) an alignment. Yeah. (laughs) He was chaotic. Like, he wasn't neutral about anything. He wasn't lawful. He was just out causing chaos and then, like, was, like, evil personified, like, just as we were talking about. Yeah. So he was running all the time, and, like, there was no method to his madness. He was—there was no method to his madness. He was always running from the law, but always trying to get back into whatever he was doing without any, like, abashment, really. No no strategy, no plan. He was just doing it because Even he when he was in prison, to... he was trying to fuck things up, like, yeah. you know? And continue to spread his ideas based on his plays. According to TV Tropes, a chaotic evil character will, quote, take pleasure in hurting others and will do whatever they want, whenever they want to. Ooh, a libertine. Which, seeing as they are evil, usually entails lots and lots of death and destruction. These characters are usually the most aggressive of the evil alignments, more often than not being possessed of an impulsively violent nature and a total disregard for people, laws, or even the world around them. In short, chaotic evil represents the destruction of not only life and goodness, but also the order upon which they depend. I think Saad perfectly encapsulates this. He sums it up almost to a T. He he almost embodies chaotic evil. He he doesn't, like, as far as we know, he doesn't bring people to death, but he destroys... Everything around him. His his life, his family name, uh, the order around him, society around him. Even the people he interacts with, like, you think about all of his victims, basically. Their lives were destroyed, even if some people were bribed after 
crimes he committed against them or some people escaped, that is a trauma they can never fully let go of. He was a very dangerous person driven by chaos. Not only his victims, but also at the time when people were not as accustomed to such writings, perhaps even people who read his writings, who maybe became horrified or even followed in his chaotic evil path. Right. If you imagine him as a philosopher, as he is touted to be, the amount of people that saw the libertine ideals and read 120 Days of Sodom, Philosophy in the Bedroom, and thought, oh, these acts are good because I'm freeing myself of some religious or societal thing. If they are taking his word to heed, they think it's okay to go on and act. Not farting on toast, but accosting and abusing children and other humans that don't want to be any part of that. If you take anything from this podcast, I would say far on toast. It'll really make X happy. Aside from that, Saad was driven by his lust for destruction of virtue and of societal values, which for the most part, you know, it's okay. I think it's good even to challenge societal values, but not to the point of destroying children and humans in such a way that he did. No. Absolutely not. I, I don't think there's really much to say about it. Uh, I apologize for the toast joke. It's it's really no joking matter. It's pretty harsh to hear about, with not only with his life, but also his writings. And it's Which I feel like there's direct correlation between them. He's an extremist, and he's trying to promote promiscuity and hedonism, of course, but... In such a corrupt and disgustable manner, it's just untenable. His abuse and his subjugation. There is a reason that just because of his writings that my boy, Napoleon, sentenced him to prison. Yes, it was probably political reasons as well. I think a lot of it was political reasons, but if you've gained anything out of this, I would say don't glorify Assad. I think it's important maybe not to burn him to the ground like his son did to understand maybe a little bit about what's going on, but don't deify him. This guy is a true villain. You you can deify him as one of the kings of hell, but not Fair one enough. of the fun kings of hell. <laughs> well, I think that about sums up Le Marquis de Sade. What made you villainous this month, Trin? Well, I got into a gang fight. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, I punched someone's buns. You punch my buns all the time. Yeah, but you're a witch, so it mm. makes sense. So you'll yeah. punch me for fun. Yeah, I got into a gang fight. Uh, I threw someone like across a room, um, uh, although I got pushed onto the ground at one point. I was pretty miserable, uh, but then I got picked up by one of my gang members. My gang was a mosh pit at a concert, so that's about the most villainous thing. I accidentally hit someone in the head. I apologized. So that was not very villainous of me. You I should have not apologized. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I, I touched someone's butt by holding them up. I was I was pushing them on top of the crowd. Oh man, that was that was my exercise for like the month. 
Uh, you carried I somebody who was crowd surfing, yeah. and after not having stretched your legs for weeks on end, this is the first physical activity you had for a long time. By the way, listeners, my ribs have healed. I was fine. <laughs> I was good. I mean, that's about the most villainous thing I've done besides, I don't know, uh, staring into the void. And eating glass. Yep. Well... I pushed drugs on people at a club. You you did what? You were there. You I pushed drugs on you too. That must have been so damn good. I, <laughs> I I barely remember that. No, it wasn't actually drugs. We went to an art exhibition with some friends beforehand. We went to a bar and we have procured something from the south called pickle salt and it is salt that has been infused with pickle juice. And everybody thinks it's cocaine. Oh, that's what you mean by drug. Everybody thinks it's cocaine. It doesn't look like cocaine. It looks like salt, but it's in a little shaker. And so I... It looks like cocaine. Yeah. It's salt. I got people to try it, and at first everyone was very skeptical. And they licked it, and they were like, oh, that actually tastes really good. So everybody was doing... All night long, they were coming to you, being like, hey, yeah. they were basically the like licking a line of pickle salt before doing tequila shots. <laughs> and our friends put it on their hand like they were actually going to snort a line of cocaine. And I was like, just like shoot it back like a shot. Normal human being. <laughs> it's salt. I swear to God. I swear right. to Satan. I swear to anything that's holy and unholy and realistic. All right, and got it. Meth salt. Yeah, we all know. It's pickle salt. <laughs> it tastes like pickles. It's great for making cocktails or just eating if you don't want to eat. So pickle salt is not cocaine if anyone offers it to you. Maybe take a sample and actually drug test it in your home. But if I am offering you pickle salt, it's not cocaine. All right. I guess let's wrap this up. Let's go. Let's go. Actually, babies, stay with us forever. We'll keep talking to you. You know we'll keep Once talking to you. Once a month. Well. When we feel like it. Today we have. Uh, actually, can I chain you up in my bedroom? Please don't. All right, listeners. Don't chain the listeners. Oh. Don't chain our four subscribers. <sighs> you got away this time. Um, We have. Un spécial shout-out pour les écouteurs françaises, montréalaises et belgiques. Nous vous voir dans la data. This is an audio medium, but I'm winking. Wink, wink. Wink. If you would like to be part of the World Domination Committee, follow us on whatever interface that you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. Infiltrate the wired with us at worlddomination.ca. And no, we are no longer hacked. Yes, that happened for a minute. I fixed it. It was not my fault. Our website in- is safe. The infrastructure engineers messed up. It was not my code. Anyway, if you would like to send us some villainous correspondence, please give us feedback. Please, come on. We need it, guys. To committee at worlddomination.ca. Dot C-A. That is C-O-M-M-I-T-T-E-E at W-O-R-L-D-D-O-M-I-N-A-T-I-O-N dot C-A. 
You can also read our infrequent yet snarky remarks on the hellscape that is Twitter at the WDC podcast. Not to be confused with WDC podcast. See what shenanigans I'm up to at trin.tech. T-R-Y-N-N dot T-E-C-H. Also, I'm not going to be updating there soon. I'm working on a project. I'll get back to you guys soon. Super secret. Super secret. You can help proliferate the gay agenda by reading what we do in the closet on any comic app you can get your grubby little fingers on. Happy Lupercalia, fuckers. But not that kind of fucker. This podcast was brought to you by Bad Baby Productions.